In the early hours of November 4th, 2017, Saudi Arabia changed forever. Across the country, princes, bureaucrats, and businessmen who had long believed themselves above the law discovered that their immunity had evaporated. Charged with corruption, some were pulled from their beds while others were summoned to non-existent meetings or detained as soon as their international flights touched down in the kingdom. Among them were Air Force generals, Navy admirals, and three sons of former King Abdullah, including the commander of the Saudi Arabian National Guard. A former minister of finance and a governor of the central bank found themselves confined together with former ministers of commerce, planning, and communications. Along with three brothers of Osama bin Laden, some 300 prominent individuals were taken to Riyadh's Ritz-Carlton Hotel, which was converted for the occasion into the world's first five-star prison. These events marked the end of an order that had governed Saudi Arabia for 65 years. Welcome to Middle East Center Book Talk, the Oxford podcast on new books about the Middle East. These are some of the books written by members of our community or the books our community are talking about. My name is Eugene Rogan, and I teach the modern history of the Middle East. My guest is David Rundell. David came to Oxford in 1976 to read for the MPhil in Modern Middle Eastern Studies. He was a student of Albert Hurani's and a direct contemporary of New York Times columnist, Tom Friedman. After completing the MPhil in 1978, David entered the U.S. Foreign Service. In 1981, he was posted as a political officer to the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, marking the beginning of a 30-year career in diplomacy, 16 of those spent in Saudi Arabia alone. He retired in 2010 as Chief of Mission at the American Embassy in Riyadh. As America's most experienced Saudi hand, Friends and colleagues have long anticipated his book on Saudi Arabia, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. The book was published in 2020 by Bloomsbury's IB Taurus imprint to critical acclaim. The Wall Street Journal declared it a book of staggering breadth and depth, and the New York Times claimed, Rondell covers the kingdom from top to bottom with vast wisdom, depth, and understanding. Given the pace of change witnessed in the once conservative Saudi kingdom over the past five years, this is a timely book. David, welcome to Book Talk. Thank you very much. It is a real pleasure to be back at Oxford, although I have to say, in many ways, I never left. It's always with me, and uh, certainly in spirit and the intellectual training that I received there. In your introduction, you say, the first question to ask about Saudi Arabia is not when will its government collapse, but why is it still here? You develop at length the history of the emergence of three distinct Saudi states and the principles that guided the modern kingdom of Saudi Arabia from King Abdulaziz down to the present. How do you account for the survival of the Saudi state against all the challenges of the 20th century? Imperialism, secular nationalism, the rise of political Islam in both its Shiite and Sunni variations. Well, this is something that I developed over a, really a whole career to try and answer that very question. And in the end, I believe that there are four legs that Saudi stability principally stands upon. The first is the 
historic legitimacy that the El Saud family has because they created the country. They unified what were a collection of small city states and wandering tribes. And so much in the sense that uh, Bismarck unified Germany or Cavour unified Italy, created something that didn't exist before, the Saudi family did that. And that gives them some legitimacy, quite a bit of legitimacy. The second thing that they did was they managed a system of succession, which again was somewhat unusual, certainly in the Arabian Peninsula. One of their rival families, you know, the El Rashid had uh, murdered the last eight emirs of their dynasty. And the El Saud themselves had had problems with that in the past. So they created a method that peacefully and quickly transferred power. And that, again, was unusual in many of the Middle Eastern states. And that also provided legitimacy. The third leg of their stool, if you will, or, or table of stability was elite cohesion and balancing stakeholders. There are stakeholder groups in Saudi Arabia. Each of them has an elite that is recognized that some are more formal than others. And the monarchy has a symbiotic relationship with them in that elite bring their followers to support the monarchy and the monarchy supports those elite so that they remain the leaders of their community. So this is a relationship that has functioned effectively for a long time with the tribes, with the religious establishment, with the merchant class, with the new modern technocratic class, and amongst the royal family itself, which I view as a, basically a hereditary political party in a one-party state. Then the, the final issue was what do they provide the average person, the average individual? And here again, they have provided by Middle Eastern standards, a competent government for a long time. And what does that mean? Number one, that means security. Saudi Arabia has not had civil wars, invasions, revolutions, coups, all of these things which plague many Middle Eastern countries have really not happened to any great extent in Saudi Arabia. So they provided security. They provided economic development, which we've talked a bit about. And again, economic development, I should point out, is not uh, automatic. It's not just because you have oil that you're going to have economic development. That's, I think, is a, is a, it's a gross underestimation of what they actually achieved. You look at Venezuela, you look at Libya. I mean, Libya is hardly even a country anymore. You look at what happened in Iran or Iraq or Nigeria. Just because you have oil doesn't mean you're going to be economically able to develop your country. And then the final thing that they did was uh, they provided gradual social change at a pace that most people would find acceptable. And again, it, it's misunderstanding to believe that the Saudi people are chafing for nightclubs and uh, miniskirts and that the El Saud are holding them back. Actually, in many cases, the people have been more conservative than the monarchy, and the monarchy has actually pushed them forward. But by and large, they've gone at the pace that the people wanted. But I just would mention that, you know, when they introduced girls' education, and some of your li listeners would know this, but they had to use the military to actually, if you will, integrate schools the same way they did in the American South when they desegregated those schools. People were killed in riots that affected the first television station, which people were protesting against the TV because they thought that was a, against Islam. 
So the government has actually been reasonably progressive in that point. And what I would really say is that they've gone at a pace that was acceptable to most people. So those are the four legs of stability. In terms of the specific points you mentioned, I think that's kind of an inter interesting um, to comment on that. Saudis have a very different relationship with imperialism than most Middle Eastern countries. They were never colonized. They have basically a positive relationship with the American oil men who came there and developed it. And the British government never dominated them in the same way that it dominated Iraq or Egypt. And in fact, the British were very influential in helping them to get rid of the Ottomans, something you would know a great deal about. And so, whereas in Egypt or Iraq, the origin of the state is from an anti-imperialist, let's get rid of the Westerners because they're not helping us. In Saudi Arabia, it's quite the opposite. In Saudi Arabia, oh, the British are helping us get rid of the Ottomans and the Americans are helping us find oil. So um, they had a very different relationship to imperialism than much of the Arab world. Nationalism was until recently not a very important issue in Saudi Arabia. Their ideology was really more religion. And then again, this is a Quite similar, if you, it, the one, one way I look at Saudi Arabia is to study European history and just to see how it evolved. And you can often see very similar parallels. And there was a time in European history when religion was really the primary ideological force. And slowly after the French Revolution, that was replaced by nationalism. And that's beginning to happen in Saudi Arabia today. But nationalism up until fairly recently was not, was, they didn't even have a national day, just for example. National Day was considered uh, against Islam because it, you only should only have Eid. But that's changed. Now they actually have National Day. So again, that's an indication of that change. And then the final thing I would say about religion is that the Saudi interpretation of Hanbali Islam, which often goes by the name of Wahhabism in the West, basically raises allegiance to the ruler to a religious responsibility. In other words, they believe that stability is, it's a little bit of a chain here, but what they really believe is that in order to be saved on judgment day, you need to live in an Islamically governed state. To have an Islamically governed state, you need to have stability. To have stability, you need to have one ruler who nobody revolts against. And therefore this supporting of the existing government becomes a religious duty. And what that means is that they don't really worry, that is to say the religious scholars don't worry about how you got to power. We in the West are very concerned about whether or not you were elected. They don't really care how you got to be the king, whether you murdered your brother or got elected doesn't really matter. What matters is how you do your job once you are the king. And that's what determines your continued legitimacy. So their attitude toward religion has been a little bit different than uh, in, in many, actually in the West and, and even some Arab countries. And therefore that also has contributed to their stability. So hopefully that answered your question. Well, you've identified key stakeholders in the Saudi system as the tribes, the religious clerics, the merchants, the technocrats, and the members of the royal family itself. So how is the balance of power between the stakeholders changed since you first went to the kingdom nearly 40 years ago? Well, some, some stakeholders have seen their influence decline. I would say that the tribes and the religious establishment 
have, they are certainly still important, but they are less important than they were 40 years ago, particularly the religious establishment, which at one point had a role in selecting the monarch. They don't anymore. Or at least let's be clear, they had a role in the um, abdication of King Saud. So the tribes and the religious community have lost influence. I think the technocrats, the modern secularly educated technocrats and the business community have seen their influence and importance to society grow. The royal family itself has seen its, its remains important, but it, the number of members of that family that are important has declined, so it has become more concentrated. And then I would add that there are a couple of new stakeholder groups, which I would say are youth and women, who were totally non-existent stakeholder groups before, and they are not organized and they're not politically active in the same exact sense that these other groups are with a, They don't have an organized elite that deals with the monarchy, but they are stakeholder groups that the government now pays attention to. So I would say that's how the stakeholder groups have changed. Your book is really about domestic Saudi politics and not so much about its foreign relations. You're particularly discreet about Saudi-U.S. relations, which I think is a real strength of the book. You didn't make this into a study of Saudi-America relations. You don't tend to view the kingdom through American lenses. But America could be added to your list of stakeholders in the Saudi system. So let's bring America into the discussion. In your experience as a diplomat, how have U.S.-Saudi relations evolved over the past 40 years? Well, that's, again, that's a good question. I think you're right. You could consider the United States a stakeholder in the Saudi government. Over the past 40 years, some things have changed and some things have remained constant. What has remained constant is that Saudi Arabia, at the end of the day, depends upon the United States for its security. And Saudi Arabia remains, at the end of the day, very important to the global economy. Those things existed 40 years ago and, and they still exist those issues or those facts. What has changed is the Cold War has ended the first part of my career. Every day I got up and looked in the mirror and said, what am I going to do to beat the Soviet Union today? And I just, I tell you another interesting story. That was very clear because the, um, this is a sidelight, but you know, when I was a very junior officer in Washington, Ronald Reagan came and gave us a speech. And he said, my plan for dealing with the Soviet Union is simple. Some of you will think it simplistic. And I remember thinking, that's a big word. I thought this guy was, you know, it's just a sort of a dumb actor. You know, he says, and some of you will think my plan simplistic. And then he just looked out at us all and he said, we're going to win. They're going to lose and you're going to do it. And I thought, wow. Then you can go play golf for the rest of the day because he, he did his job. I mean, he told everybody very clearly what was going to happen and how it was going to happen and what we were supposed to do. So for the first part of my career, that is pretty much what we tried to do. And the Saudis helped us. The Saudis were one country that never shirked. Whatever we asked them to do, they were, they were willing to help, whether it was, you know, funding Contras in uh, Nicaragua, which some people didn't like, or supporting the Mujahideen, or helping uh, in Africa, in many ways, they they were a very strong ally in in the um, 
in the Cold War. Cold War went away. And then we had what we would call, I guess, the War on Terror. And again, that the Saudis became strong allies in that. So one conflict was replaced by support in another. I think something else which changed really were the economic factors. The United States is not Saudi Arabia's biggest trading partner anymore. We were for a long time. Uh, now Europe and uh, Europe is really, and China are their biggest trading partners. And also Russia has become uh, their partner in energy markets. So China and Russia are much more important to Saudi Arabia commercially than they were in the past. And then the final thing I would say is that what has remained constant in the relationship is its volatility. It's always volatile. I mean, it, this is a, these, are, these are countries that have shared interests and, and not a lot of shared values, at least in, in most of the history that I've been involved with. And the relationship is always up and down, up and down, but within a certain set of parameters. And the other thing about it is that it has remained a very uh, personalized relationship. There is a king and there is a president, and the relationship really does uh, revolve a lot about the relationship between those two. Who is the prime minister of Great Britain and the president of the United States matters to some extent, but those relationships are largely institutionalized and not going to change overnight. That's not true with the relationship with Saudi Arabia. The king could decide tomorrow he doesn't like Saudi or doesn't like America and he decides he wants to be the friend of China or something. And the president has uh, you know, a Congress that he's got to bring along and that costs him politically often. I've seen that many times that the president has to spend political capital to maintain this relationship. And sometimes he might not want to do that. So the relationship remains more personal than, than most other uh, major relationships that we have. So that's nicely to my next question. Okay. The way that the Saudi-U.S. relationship has been transformed over the past four years. Since Donald Trump became president in January 2017, and Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince in June of that same year, these two men have pursued policies that have fundamentally altered the Saudi system. Some might say broken the system certainly weakened the position of the traditional stakeholders and concentrated power in the crown prince's hands. Will these changes pave the way to necessary reforms as set out in the much-touted Vision 2030? Or does disregard for the rules that held the kingdom together put the Saudi project in jeopardy? Well, that is the key question, isn't it? That is the meat of the whole book. The first comment I would make is that I don't think that King Salman broke the system so much as recognized that the system was coming to an end. The system that had existed for the past 65 years with one brother handing power over to another brother, over to another brother, was coming to a natural end because they were running out of brothers. And so they were going to have to make this transition to the third generation of princes at some point. And that was never going to be easy. So when I look at what the king has achieved, and I think he's achieved quite a lot, it's not, in my view, the fact that women are driving or he's balancing the budget, uh, or he was at least until COVID. 
those are significant. But what really is the most important achievement, in my view, is that he avoided a Game of Thrones or a family feud. It's, it's a sort of what he avoided that is, in fact, his biggest achievement. And the 500 plus grandsons who all thought they should have become the king could have been very destabilizing. And as anyone who's been to the Middle East Center knows, uh, they all know who Ibn Khaldun is, and they all know that Ibn Khaldun says that dynasties will last for, um, you know, 100 years or at the most three generations, and then they will collapse. And I can assure you, King Salman has read Ibn Khaldun, and uh, he didn't want that to happen in his watch. So he's engineered the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, no question about it. Mohammed bin Salman was the anointed chosen person and he did consolidate power. And that is a dramatic change in that the way the country used to, used to operate. And whether or not it now becomes a police state or whether it becomes a more accountable monarchy is a very open question. I would have to say that at the moment, the uh, odds, the way it looks like it's becoming more of a police state. Power is being concentrated. Uh, this may well have been necessary to make the changes, to make the transition. And we can only hope that uh, when you look at the models of how European monarchies evolved, some of them evolved peacefully and some of them did not. And we can hope that the Saudi monarchy evolves peacefully. I, the one thing that would lead me to believe that that might happen are two things. Number one, the, the monarchy is legitimate and the people, most of the people uh, support the idea of the monarchy today, in part because they don't, uh, the different stakeholders trust the monarchy more than they trust each other. So they have a strong base to start from. And the second factor is that the ultimate goal of the monarchy is to remain influential and powerful. And if they saw that the best way to do that was to slowly um, relinquish some of their authority, they might be willing to do that rather than face some sort of a violent backlash. So there's a chance that they can evolve and there's a chance that they won't. I would argue that this is really where we have a choice to make. We in the West, and I mean Britain and the United States, have a choice to make. We need friends and allies in order to defend our own security and prosperity. And that when, it, during my diplomatic career, that I was always taught that the role of American foreign policy or British foreign policy is to protect the prosperity and security of the British or American people. So to do that, we need, we need friends and allies. And I've gone through some of the things that the Saudis have done, whether it's in oil markets or counterterrorism or promoting the peace process, or as I say, just in general, being a status quo power. These are things which are helpful to us. But on the other hand, a support for human rights is also a strength of Britain and the United States. And here the Saudis have quite a bit to answer for whether it's the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, the war in Yemen, the detention of dissidents. These are problems. And we have to decide how do we protect our interests, continue to promote the reforms that are going on, this, this quite significant economic and social reforms that are taking place in Saudi Arabia, and also get them to improve their 
human rights record. And I think it's pretty clear that trying to sanction them or antagonize them in some way, isolate them, is probably not going to work with a group of people who know that they're important to the global economy and believe that they are important in creating a global religion. So they are in many ways, um, they have a unique culture and a unique history and a unique situation. And I don't think isolating them is likely to help us obtain our goals. And so what I would argue is that we need to figure out how to constructively engage them to work on the problems that we have, but also to continue with the positive, if you will, elements of our relationship. So I think that's what I would, what I would say about that. Well, I think you've given good advice for the incoming Biden administration as it looks to a post-Trump relationship with Saudi Arabia. David, thank you very much. I have been speaking with author David Rundell about his book, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. And this has been Middle East Center Book Talk. Thank you for listening and goodbye from Oxford.